Chapter 1 It was dark. The orange of the street light was the only exception. He was awake, but drifting in an unaware world. Whoever had spoken was standing too close. Two long blasts on a horn made the walls shake. As the ceiling crumbled, he thought he saw everything in purple. There were white cracks across his lines of vision. His first thought was, why are horns so final? He didn't hear himself think this, but he heard the word, why. It was said in a turquoise sheen. He tried to focus on why. Then he heard the word, me. Me! The question on his mind was the most thwarted question anybody could think of. Why me? While the question was audible, it was garbled, as if it had been shouted from behind closed doors. All of the other sounds were phosphorescent, not horns anymore, not voices, but blue sirens that shot into the soaring pillars of an ancient temple. It looked something like the Parthenon. The roof was about to collapse. He was standing between the pillars at the top of the stone steps. There was debris everywhere. Through the orangeness, he could pick out fragments of the destruction around him. Now, the burning pages of a book slipped through the air. The words on the paper were no longer legible, but they may have been audible. It seemed that the ground was throbbing. There was someone else between the pillars. There were two of them. Even though one of them was him, he could see both of them with his eyes closed. The other person was a woman. She was behind him, standing too close. There was something heavy in her right hand. Had he been aware of who he was, Otto wouldn't have been able to see any of it. Not the pillars, not the stone steps, not the pink and golden flames, not the woman. None of it would have been real. Nor would he have been able to see himself rushing down as fast as he could, taking the steps two by two. Even as he watched himself descend with an unsettling disinterest in the terror he felt, he understood how much his life depended on his death. The woman stayed with him. She wasn't running after him. She was standing between the pillars, in billows of dust and all the scorched paper drifting between the eddies. She had a long yellow dress on, like a cocktail dress. Her shoulders were bare. Although he could see her neck, her face was obscured in the intimacy of the temple. She was holding a length of scaffolding. With both hands she raised it as if she was about to bring it down on his head. No matter how fast Otto tumbled down the steps, he could hear the soft chimes of her song, the prolonged notes, the whistling sighs, like the sounds of the purest bells cast in the hottest furnace. He was going at a tremendous pace when he heard her vital words. It's hidden in gold. There were more steps at the bottom of the steps. 
Still rational enough to query this rather than succumb to it, he slowed down. He began to take the steps at a more leisurely pace. If he could wonder about the endlessness of the steps, he could also wonder about the finality of the horns. That had been real enough, like the explosions that came after. Two of them, both heralded by the horns. It was a fanfare for the beginning, yet it was played at the end. There was no sound. The first cloud flashed and flew into the day, like a noiseless uprising with shards of orange still stretching brightly where the fission had been triggered. This blast took almost everything that existed with it. The next one was just as silent and just as final. Both strikes billowed upwards into the sky. They both became enormous temple pillars, elongating and rolling over themselves, stretching higher than the surrounding mountains. As they looped skywards over the highest peaks, just as the glare across the horizon was beginning to look meditative, Otto found himself lurching onto the very last step, engulfed in flames. <gasps> Although he was awake now, he was prepared to accept that the woman was still close enough to strike him with a metal pole. She was standing right behind him. He could still hear her sighing. She said something else, but he couldn't make it out. Her voice was deeper. It was louder. It sounded like the clunk of a car door. He heard the door slam like a lump of something cold and metallic catching the side of his skull. As soon as he realized he was alive, he propped himself up on his elbows. The first thing he did on that first day of his life was focus on the streetlight. Its orange hue fanned out from behind the curtains. Oblivious of the conundrum that comes with only having just been born, he looked for something else familiar to recognize. He saw the outlines of his suitcases and felt much better. If he had to put an English phrase to it, he might have said he was in fine fettle. But this would have been untrue. Claiming his fettle was fine overlooked the fear he felt. His breathing said it all. He rubbed the side of his head with the flat of his hand. He couldn't remember why he was so afraid. Although he wasn't dead, it felt as if he should be. Flopping onto his back, he produced the first familiar sound of the day. It was a muffled laugh. <laughs> Having acknowledged the streetlight, which made the room look like a shrine, Otto went on to listen to the smothered silence of the rest of the night. The only other sound to sneak a rhythm into the orangeness was his panting. A voice tried to reassure him. It was the voice of reason. He hardly listened, but it brought with it a declaration of finality. It told him that it was Tuesday the 17th of February, 2019. It seemed that all his life Otto had been waiting to wake up on this day. 
Grinding his jaw against the disorientation, he closed his eyes and kept them closed. He stopped breathing. He was hoping not to have to dwell on the life and times of Otto Loser. As he lay on his back, pretending that Otto was dead, he pictured a new life. Now the woman he loved hovered into view. In the idea he had of her, she was already at the Spitzenhof Café. They were destined to meet there for lunch the following day. He heard the dog as well. In this particular premonition, the dog was always barking. Although he'd known there would be a dog in the café, there were many things Otto hadn't foreseen. He wasn't aware of it yet, but these things were destined to happen as well. He'd been holding his breath for nearly a minute before he relented. The bedroom was the shape of a box. It was like a shoebox he'd kept for a dead mouse to live in. He'd found the mouse in his grandmother's kitchen one summer when he was a boy. As he thought about the mouse, Otto pinched his skin and could feel the pain. It thrilled him to be able to feel something. It meant he could start living. He could forget what he used to be. He could forget that the walls of his pokey flat were coated in a creamy colored wallpaper he'd come to hate, and how the maroon carpet was at its most threadbare near the bedroom door, and how this same carpet had been laid in a lounge with a mock antique table, and the lumpy armchair he used to sit in, reading his files. The paint on the bedroom door had been stripped back. There were white flecks and patches on the pine. The other Otto used to stare at those patches like they were ghosts. The Otto that didn't exist anymore. As for his wardrobe, this too was an imposter. He would enjoy forgetting how the wardrobe had never been high enough to hang his suits in. Breathing more regularly, he turned to his side and scratched his leg. He could feel the itch going away. It was so wonderful he scratched some more until the satisfaction was gone completely. Because it was the first day of his life, it was time to regard everything the old Otto possessed as a useless adjunct. All of it would be obliterated in the rush of excitement that would pitch this great day forward. He was making his escape permanent. He would never again need to be troubled by his accommodation or the many parallels that might be drawn with his now defunct career. All the while, though, there was another voice in his head he was trying to ignore. This was the voice of mystery. She was saying that to be consumed by flames wasn't to be destroyed. It was to be reshaped beyond recognition. Otto tried to remember what came first, arriving or leaving. The words vitality and gratitude sped their way into his thoughts. They made popping sounds. A novel expression occurred to him in those sounds. He didn't think he'd made it up, yet it was one he'd never heard before, either in English or in German. Turning to find the only comfortable dip left in the mattress, he counted 15 words hanging in the darkness. Leaving is a life. It requires vitality. Arriving is a death. It, it requires, requires gratitude. gratitude. 
The voice whispering this to him was the voice of a magician. You're hearing it now. It kept disappearing until the words themselves hissed into the recollection of a black and white photograph. The photograph had been taken in 1999. The woman he was going to meet in the Spitzenhof the following day had taken it. He was looking at the camera in the photograph, smiling in a way he could no longer smile. It was the raw energy of the smile that was so frightening. Otto hadn't smiled like that in nearly 20 years. Then he remembered Marie lowering her camera and looking at him with concern. He was sure he could hear popping sounds. It was like the glottal stops an English voice might make or the clunk of a car door. His suitcases were packed. They were ready to go. For the first time since waking up, he felt ready to leave. As his eyes grew accustomed to the orange glow at the window, the voice of mystery came to him once again. It said, All things come from where they've been. All things come from where they've been. Otto nodded. For once his voices were making sense. He was glad he was going back to where he came from. Even though his eyes were open, he saw nothing but his emotions now. Like everything else he'd been able to cram into his suitcases, his emotions were all he had. Once he'd flattened them into a more manageable size, he found he could stare more intently at the shadows. His suitcases were solidly dark. Two sentinel objects by the bedroom door, ready to be hauled down a concrete stairwell, never to return. His odyssey would begin in a taxi. The recollection that there might be a taxi waiting outside was followed by the sound of a new, more wretched voice. It was the voice of panic. What it shouted wasn't a word. It was like the wail of a newborn child. His legs hit the floor at speed. In two long strides, he was standing naked by the window. The clutter of his unaware world, the whole mental drift that had defined his short but restless night, was gone. He peered round the edge of the curtain and was confronted by his worst nightmare, a strong desire to jump. Two floors down, at the corner of the cul-de-sac, the driver stood by his Renault Clio. The man's orange breath condensed in puffs around his head. The peak of his baseball cap obscured his face. He had his mobile out. The screen glowed in blues and whites. Before he made the driver aware of his presence, Otto stretched the curtain over the top of his chest. With his fist clenched, he knocked twice against a pane of glass nodding vigorously, stretching his mouth to exaggerate what he wanted to say. He breathed out the words, I'll be right down. I'll be as fast as I can. Although he was only mouthing the words, he made it look as if he was shouting them. He caught a glimpse of himself running down the steps, on fire. The taxi driver saw him and waved. Thinking back.
When Anton saw his muse walk into the cafe for a second time, there was nothing to be missed. He made a careful note of the date and time. Even as he did this, he could hear what sounded like thunder and rain, or it might have been the flop of a boulder into a river. It wasn't any kind of sound that could ordinarily be anticipated in a cafe. It was a thump, then a splash close by, and musical, as if it had been played on a double bass with a trio of flautists. Urania had arrived at precisely two minutes to two. Before he looked, Anton could feel her presence. She sat down and started to read. Once again, he was captivated by the elegance of her profile. He had seen a likeness of it in a history magazine featuring a find of ancient wine gourds off the Alexandrian coast. It was this same woman's profile, with the same messy hairstyle. She ordered a mug of hot chocolate with whipped cream. Having settled into her book, save to turn the pages, she hardly moved. She was the perfect statue of a dynamic gesture. As far as Anton was concerned, what he was staring at was something only an ancient could have sculpted. The more he stared, the louder the splashing became. He wanted to ignore it, but he couldn't. Soon it sounded like the hooves of a horse again. Together with the galloping, he heard the piercing squeal a violin might make. As he became immersed in a feeling of being in the mountains, he typed as quickly as he could, trying to capture in words what he was experiencing as a physical reality. The words were legible, but they were detached from any meaning he could discern. At first it was endless, then it was beginningless. At its highest, it turned into a blackness with vanishing hints of marine, which he had to strain to see. As if from memory, Anton found himself describing the outlines of a storm. The storm was molding itself over the horizon. He had no idea what he was seeing or why he should be able to visualize a face in the curdling shape of a black cloud. That would be for me to deal with in Chapter 2. By then, my experiences had stretched beyond Anton's ability to imagine them. I had already left England far behind, but he was still able to squeeze his thoughts into my thoughts. In those early days, he seemed to want to make me wonder what it meant to be on a long journey. There was a saying I couldn't get out of my head. Leaving is a life. It requires vitality. Arriving is a death. It requires gratitude. Eventually, I worked out that Anton and his wife had dreamed up this saying back in the 1960s when they were young and philosophical. They used it ritualistically to punctuate their conversations. I will introduce Oksana Oleksandrivna later. What I should point out now is that she was a truly gifted artist. For most of her career, she'd been painting trees. Early in 2019, however, she decided to paint her husband. She'd already begun her extraordinary portrait of him. It was one that would land him into quite a predicament. But we mustn't skip too far ahead. On a cold afternoon, long before the 18th of February, 
the writer was in his usual corner, typing on his laptop. Urania had come into the cafe for a second time. While she was reading her book, a few sentences came to mind, so he typed them out. He occasionally checked himself by looking up. Not once did he see her sip her hot chocolate. Whenever he returned to his writing, what came to him was the substance of something he didn't understand. It wasn't anything like the novel he thought he was writing. It was so much more inspired that he was having to rewrite what he'd done. He couldn't see the cover of Urania's book, but he suspected she must be reading Otto in Flames. For an hour or so, he observed his muse in this way, typing strange new sentences into the chapter he was working on and looking back to check on her every now and then. He noted that it took her roughly 20 seconds to turn to the next page in her book. She was very near the end, but Anton was only just getting started. Moved to describe the storm in my life, he wrote this. He was in the clouds. It felt more like a beginning than an end, a voice was saying. It was the voice of a child. It felt more like a beginning than an end. At a few minutes past three, Urania paid her bill. She smiled at a waiter and left. Despite her heavy coat and high heels, there was a graceful fall to her step. To Anton's susceptible mind, it was as if she was floating out of the cafe. Once she'd gone, the impressionistic sounds of a small orchestra went with her. Other than her name, and the fact that she appeared to be reading the book he was writing, Anton knew virtually nothing about her. The idea of trawling the internet suggested itself as a means of finding out more. He made a few listless attempts, but he lacked the application. He knew she would be back. Already then, Anton understood that Urania had so much more in store for him. On the occasion of her third appearance, he pretended to be busy with his writing, as if she wasn't really there. But he couldn't write. He could only type. After ordering the hot chocolate that she wouldn't drink, Urania began reading the very last passages of her book. Although Anton was typing gobbledygook, certain words and phrases on his screen found their own meanings. One of the more interesting sentences to emerge from the rubble would become the basis for everything he was imagining. All things come from where they've been. When this sentence occurred, it didn't have a context, but it had a longing. If all things come from where they've been, then the writer must have come from a cave. We might even say the cave was an ideal Anton had always existed in. He could make out the summits of the peaks where the entrance was. Along a remote ridge with a canyon to one side, he could easily imagine the gaping mouth of his cave. It was the one place that offered him solace. He didn't know why yet, but he would often see an eagle in the sky. It was being chased by a couple of ravens. The eagle was silent and menacing, more like the dark of the night. He imagined the eagle was me. It would have been better to think of it as the eagle Zeus used to punish Prometheus with, but we will come to that soon enough. 
In the moonlight that followed, Anton sensed that one day he would be the rider in those high mountains, where rare flora could be gathered in the late summer heat, like answers to all the most burning questions. When Urania got up to leave, he made his mind up he would follow her. What caused him to be so fatally attracted was the force of the immersions he kept getting in her presence. Having given it no thought at all, but entirely as an excited response to the facts, he concluded that following Urania would be a way not just of finding out more, but of knowing everything imaginable. It may be said that his ideas came from the daydreams of someone who had nothing better to do with his retirement. But let me rebut those kinds of criticisms. Anton wasn't just dabbling. Unlike other experiences that come and go, his daydreams couldn't be forgotten. They were shaping and compiling themselves into a new reality. Because of this, they were terrifying. As he hobbled through the snow in pursuit of Urania, it felt as if he'd contracted a condition with no cure. Yet before long, he would get good at it. In fact, Anton would become an adept. It is precisely because daydreaming is so frowned upon. Precisely because daydreaming is so frowned upon, he wrote in the journal he left behind, that so few of us have learned how to exist in the unearthly continuum, which I shall refer to as the unseen. Although daydreaming had long been disdained in children and was all but abandoned by adults by the end of the age of books, Anton had begun to work at it passionately. He saw that more could be produced in an expansive moment than is produced through years of carefully contrived writing. After he'd mustered the courage to follow Urania through town, he went on to make regular forays into a timelessness where there are never whole sentences, but only unexpected words or sometimes phrases to describe the surreal challenges that faced him. It was like being called. Strange as it may sound, Anton was learning how to listen to what was happening to us both. There was just one problem. Before he could remain in his daydreams with any confidence, there was a psychological issue that had to be overcome. What the writer was referring to as the unseen could only be accessed when he wasn't aware he was trying to access it. This will feel like a paradox, but it's a perfectly straightforward one. The moment you became aware of yourself in it, the unseen would collapse around you. Unlike a mirage in the desert, you couldn't even want it to be there. If you tried to exert any control, what would burn itself back onto Anton's eyes was his everyday existence. Only when he was able to give himself up entirely did anything he imagined actually come true. He sometimes discussed his fear of this power in his journal. All the unseen requires are the efforts of a good writer to close it in sentences. As long as you survive the shock of what you happen to see. The notion that he had to relinquish himself to the unseen may have had something to do with the book he was reading in bed at the time. Because it was so densely written, it was the perfect read to induce sleep. 
Among the many sentences Anton didn't understand, the one that stayed with him was all about giving. Thought has the gift of giving back. A gift given because we incline toward it. More than any clarity this sentence may have conveyed, the word gift was the word Anton clung to during his sleepless nights. He knew he was on the verge of receiving a great gift from his muse. All he had to do was forget about it, and it would be given. But that was much easier said than done. Especially if he wasn't allowed to control his thoughts, Anton was terrified of what he might think of next. Each morning, before he started working on Otto in flames, he laid out his pills in neat rows. There were quite a number. He'd recently been prescribed some pink ones. They were to be the cavalry, in case the coffee got too much. His doctor had advised that he should stop drinking it, but coffee was the one stimulant Anton needed to be able to focus on his book. He hoped the cavalry would see off any adverse symptoms. If he persisted in going to his favorite cafe and sipping the black bean, it was because the gift he was inclining towards was so exceptional that writing about it had become imperative. In a real dream he had, which must have happened well before the 18th of February, someone seemed to suggest to Anton that what he was looking for was hidden in gold. He didn't know what he was looking for exactly. Whether or not they were speaking to him, or whether he'd overheard those words, he didn't know either. But that dream went on to disturb his sleep for the rest of his life. He would lie awake at night, not so much startled as puzzled. It's hidden in gold. It was as if he'd come out of this dream with a riddle on his lips. It would turn out to be the clue to a question he hadn't yet asked. Thank you.